Good morning. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning as we continue our study in this wonderful book. I'll give you a moment to find that. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 4 and 5 this morning. I'll read verses 1 through 5 just to kind of get the flow, all right? So 1 Peter chapter 2, begin reading in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He's talking about growing in the Word of God, growing in our Christian walk, as we saw a number of weeks ago. And it boils down to um, casting off wickedness and to studying the Word of God. So here's casting off wickedness, verse 1. Put away, strip off all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then study the Word of God. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it, by the Word of God, you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, if indeed you are a Christian. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As we know, the Apostle Peter wrote this book to multiple churches to encourage believers who were suffering persecution for the Lord. Over and over in this text, Peter doesn't just hint at this, by the way, over and over in this, in this book. He clearly speaks to the fact that these believers were, were in the midst of trial. They were suffering for the cause of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 16, it says, uh, You have been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Live godly lives is the idea. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. When you live godly lives, they not just might do this, they will do this. These believers are being persecuted for their faith. The more godly they were, the more they were spoken against as evildoers. The godliness you are doing is actually evil. Chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, suffer for the sake of Christ and the gospel, you will be blessed. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised, God's people, when godly living reaps from the world persecution, fiery trials. This is par for the course if you're a Christian loving the Lord and trying to serve the Lord. These faithful Christians were suffering hardship, open persecution. They were facing threats upon their livelihoods and upon their very lives. And Peter wants to help them face those trials with Christian wisdom and courage and grace. Now up to this point, Peter has encouraged his readers and us along a number of lines. Let me just kind of work through the first chapter 
quickly to show it, to remind us as to how he was encouraging these believers. First of all, he began this this book in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, by stating that even though these believers are scattered and rejected by the world, God shows them to be his special possession. You're rejected by the world, but understand how God sees you. You are God's chosen ones, and you are precious to him. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Peter reminds them of the glorious salvation they possess. They have so much in Christ. What is reserved for them in heaven, the heavenly blessings, will never spoil, be contaminated, lose its luster, or be lost or stolen. No matter what they lose in this life, and they were losing a great deal. And even if they lose their lives... What's held out in heaven for them, what's awaiting them in heaven will never be lost. It's interesting that chapter 1, verse 12, their salvation was so so astonishing, according to verse 12, that angelic beings spend time attempting to grasp the wonders of their salvation, of our salvation. Even today, angelic beings are staring into, watching over, trying to grasp the wonders of what we have in Christ. In chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, Peter challenges these believers to respond to trials and mistreatment in the only way appropriate for God's children, be holy as God is holy. As you're suffering persecution, don't don't just um, respond with, Wickedness with rebellion, with discouragement, be holy, be set apart to God in that situation. In verses 22 through 25, Peter commands his readers to love one another earnestly. Why does he do that? These believers are suffering persecution. Why does he say love one another deeply, earnestly? Because the darker the world is, the brighter this is. This is the haven of encouragement and help and ministry This is to be a place where God's people love one another and care for one another. The world is increasingly dark, and these believers were facing life-threatening persecution. Where are they going to go for help? The church. Where do we go for help? The church. And in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, which we just read, Peter answers the question, how do we grow spiritually in times of trial? What are the mechanisms of Christian growth? These believers are suffering. How are they going to keep growing in their relationship with Christ amidst all of that? And the answer, of course, is obedience. Turn away from from sin and the study of the Word of God. And that's the answer for us, too, today. How are we going to grow? No matter what our life situation It's stripping off the things of the old life and running after the truths of Scripture. Now we're in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Peter further encourages his readers and us this morning by describing what believers are and do. It's interesting, he's actually describing what we are together and what we do together. Look at your Bibles. Notice the beginning of verse 5. Now, verse 4, he addresses the believers as individuals, but then verse 5, he switches. You see the word you? That's a plural. You all. 
if you have a King James, the King James actually does us a favor. Whenever there's a plural, you, they translate it ye. So we know that, which is actually quite helpful. I wish maybe we would do that still because it's helpful. You all, he's speaking to the churches. Remember, he's addressing multiple churches. And here he switches to you all because he's not addressing us so much as individual Christians. He's addressing the churches as churches. You all, as you form a church. And notice the word priesthood in verse 5. That's a collective singular, speaking to the fact that we are a in this church family, we are a priesthood. Okay, So he's not just talking in this text about what we are and do as individuals. He's talking in this text about what we are and do as a church family. All right. So what's the encouragement here from Peter to these believers, from Peter to us? It's simply this. You're not alone. You don't suffer for persecution alone. You don't serve the Lord alone. We serve the Lord together. We face persecution, trial, difficulty, hardship together. When you're suffering, when you're in the middle of it, you share it with one another. And we help you bear those burdens. At least we should be. You should allow other believers to do that, to share burdens with you, to help you, to encourage you. And when we serve the Lord, we don't just serve the Lord as individuals. We serve the Lord as part of a group, as part of a priesthood. Let's pray and we'll we'll dig into this text this morning. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful, wonderful portion of your word. We're so thankful that we're not in this alone. The trials we face, we don't face alone. The ministries we're involved in, we don't do that alone. We face everything with your help and your grace, and we face everything in this life and in our ministries with the help and aid and encouragement of others who love you. Encourage us today, Father, in the same way you encouraged the original readers of these words. Draw us closer to you and closer to one another as we realize we are a priesthood together. We are a a house, a temple together. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, he talks about us as individuals. As individuals, we need to habitually draw near to the Lord. So notice verse 4. As you come to him. As you as an individual Christian, as part of this church family, as you come to him. Now, by the way, this phrase is used often in the New Testament to speak of someone coming to Christ in salvation. That that first coming, that initial coming to Christ for eternal life, for forgiveness, for salvation. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 18, Jesus says, Come unto me. Same phraseology, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There's no rest any other place. There's rest in me. Come to me. The idea is for salvation, for forgiveness, and I'll care for you. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He defines coming to Christ as believing in him. I'll spiritually sustain you and nourish you if you come to me. So the, often this phrase is used of coming to Christ that first time. That's not how Peter's using it here. The word come in your, uh, in your Bible is, the, the Greek term speaks of a consistent coming. It's not speaking of the initial coming to Christ. It's speaking of the consistent, habitual, day-to-day coming. Now what's interesting, a couple things here. First, This coming to Christ speaks of a very close, intimate relationship. In that phrase, in that phrase, as you come to me, you can't see this in your English text, but in that phrase there is a little preposition that occurs twice. The preposition means to draw near. It actually sometimes means face to face, to come face to face. Now, recently there was a wedding, and at that wedding, two people stood there face to face, right? I think they were. They weren't turned away, were they? I couldn't make it. They weren't turned away, right? Do you take this person? I don't know. They're back here. No, they were face to face. That's the idea of this, of this situation. Drawing face to face with Jesus Christ is the idea. This is a very intimate thing. Now, by the way, how do we do that? How do we draw face-to-face near Jesus Christ? How do we do that? Well, we allow him to speak to us intimately, and we speak to him intimately. How does he speak to us? Through the Word of God, through the study of Scripture. So this coming to him, verse 4, it speaks of a consistent, habitual, day-to-day coming to Christ and being face-to-face with him. And the first thing that involves is letting him talk to us. And he does that through the study of the Word and through meditation upon the Word. By the way, that's a really um, lost art, meditation. Uh, Eastern culture has influenced us, our world, and Eastern culture speaks of meditation, and it's been adopted here by many. Uh, Meditation involves emptying the mind. Well, that's not what biblical meditation is. Biblical meditation is filling the mind with Scripture, with biblical truth. So what is meditation exactly? Well, um, there are probably two groups in this room. You have a piece of hard candy, and you put it in your mouth. Some of you are crunchers. You suck for a second, then you just you have no patience whatsoever. Crunch, crunch, crunch. It's gone, swallowed, and gone. And you've not really tasted much. Now you've experienced the sugar high and uh, the calories, whatever else, but you've not uh, gained much value, much taste. So some of you are crunchers. I could ask for a raise of hand. You know who you are, but some of you are crunchers. Some of you are suckers. It's not really, <laughs> not really uh, a nice thing to be called. But some of you are suckers. You suck that piece of candy, and you probably talk through it, 
or for dinner. And you, just, you're, you extract from that piece of candy every bit of sweetness, the entire value of the candy, right? That's meditation. Now, some of us, with our Bible reading, we're crunchers. We read it, rip through it, and I'm done. I did my thing for the day, but I didn't grab a whole lot of the value of the scriptures because my mind quickly runs to what I have to do today, and my mind never goes back to it. Biblical meditation is reading the scriptures sometime in your day, doing that in a disciplined way, and then thinking about that text, that passage throughout the day, and trying to extract from it all the flavor, all the value. How does this text apply to this? How does it apply to that? The text I just read this morning, how does it apply to my driving while I'm driving to work? Well, that's for some of us, we need to probably do that. How, do us, how does this text apply to my relationship with my coworkers, with my spouse, with my children, grandchildren? Uh, how does it apply to my ethics, to how I live today? How does it um, apply to my language, to how I'm thinking, to my value system? That's what meditation is. Taking the text you've read and extracting from it, thinking about it, extracting from it, all that's there. That's how we draw face to face with Christ. Letting him tell us what's there and then extracting from that conversation all the value that's there. And there's the other side of of, uh, our drawing face to face to Christ, and that's prayer. So through the study of the scriptures, we let him talk to us. And then through prayer, we talk to him now. Let him bear our burdens. Second thing I want to note here is Peter, Peter assumes something here. Notice verse 4, as you come to him. That's not advice. It's not even a command. He, he could have commanded, verse 4, come to him. He doesn't do that. He assumes we come to him. He doesn't just say, do it. He says, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, well, then I'm assuming you come to Christ on a daily basis. I'm assuming you're drawn near to him uh, consistently, habitually, that you spend time in his word, allowing him to speak to you, and you mull over what he has said to you, and then you speak to him. That's the assumption Peter's making, which is maybe even more convicting than if he commanded us to do so. This is the assumption of every Christian. This is the assumption of, of, of each one of us today. This is the Christian's default habit. It's the default. What do I do as a Christian? Every day I draw near to Christ. Folks, one of the characteristics of a true believer is this fact. That this is what we do. We come to Christ, we come to Christ, we come to Christ. We allow him to speak to us because we need his help, we need his wisdom. And then we, then we allow him to bear our burdens. We bow before him in prayer and talk to him. Third thing I want to note here is that the Christian continually drawing near to the Lord is that which brings us growth. It's, it's that in that way that we're built up. So look at your Bibles closely because you need to see the flow of the text. Verse 4, there's a, there's a kind of a parenthesis right in the middle of verse 4. So as you come to him, a living stone, 
Here's the parenthesis. Now he's describing the living stone. As you come to him, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's the end of the, the, the break, the parenthesis. Now it continues with the flow. You yourselves. So verse 4, the beginning. As you come to him, a living stone, skip down to verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. So rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's a parenthesis in the middle where he takes a second and just describes Christ. Now, by the way, let's focus on that little phraseology because it's wonderful. Even in this little phrase, describing Christ, the living stone, he encourages his readers. So a living stone, parenthesis, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, end of parenthesis. When he does this, he's encouraging them again. You readers, fellow believers, you're rejected by men. And you feel rejected. You're experiencing rejection. The world's not a friend to you. The world may even hate you. Understand, Jesus Christ was also rejected. You're in good company if you're rejected by the world. And he was chosen by the Father and absolutely precious to the Father. And understand, you are rejected by the world, but you too are chosen by the Father and absolutely precious to him. So this is a wonderful encouragement. We could just spend time right here. But note the flow here. Because it's important for us. As you come to him a living stone, skip down to verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So this coming to Christ on a daily basis, letting him speak and us speaking to him, that is the means by which we, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. House. This is how the spiritual house becomes structurally sound. So now he's talking to us as a church family. How are we? How is the church family? This structure going to become spiritually structurally sound? How are we going to be built up in Him by drawing near to Him, drawing face to face with Him on a consistent basis? You realize that. The strength of the structure of our church family depends on how much, how faithfully each one of us draws near to Him on a daily basis. If we're spiritually weak, now we're going to talk about this word stone here. And these stones are fitted perfectly to to fit into the the walls, as it were, of the church. If If the stones are crumbling, if the stones speaking to us now, are not growing, are not solid, spiritually solid and strong, how strong will the church be? It won't be. It'll be weak. So first of all, we as individuals habitually draw near to the Lord, and we must, if our church family, if our building is going to be structurally sound. Then he switches gears now. We together form, together form, a spiritual house. Verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. In verse 4, Jesus is called a living stone. 
who are living there, recalls attention to the fact that he is the risen one, and he alone can impart spiritual life to the spiritually dead. This word stone is a messianic term. Peter uses it in Acts chapter 4, speaking of Christ there as well as he stands before the Sanhedrin. In verse 5, he calls us living stones as well. Through our relationship with Christ, the living stone, we too are like living stones. All who experience the new birth are alive in Christ and experience this relationship with him, the living stone, such that we are living stones. Now, according to Peter, as living stones, we form a spiritual house, verse 5, or a temple. Understand the point here. As Christians, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Right As an individual, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God dwells within you. You are the house, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So I'm looking at multiple temples in this sense. The Spirit of God resides in each one of you and me. Peter goes further. His point, as truthful as that is, that the Spirit dwells in each one of us individually, his point is that the Spirit indwells all of us together. That as a church body, we are a house. We are his temple. We are God's dwelling place. We, he resides within us as a church body. We are the living stones that make up God's place of dwelling. We f- together form God's temple here on this earth. Grace Baptist Church is not made up of bricks and lumber and drywall. You look around, that's what you see. But Grace Baptist Church is not really constructed of that. Grace Baptist Church is constructed with living stones. Perfectly fitted to function together. Paul says this, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 3. We just read this a few moments ago. Don't you know, this is verse 16 of that text. This is important, so let's think it through here. Don't you know, he says, that you yourselves, plural, are God's temple, singular. You, all of you, he's saying the same thing Peter's saying, are God's singular temple place where he resides, and that God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God will, if anyone destroys a church, God will destroy him for God's temple, because God's temple, because God's church, this church, is sacred, and you are that temple. These are terrifying words, by the way. To apply it to us, this body is sacred. This body has been set apart to God and is precious to him. And anyone who would seek to destroy it, he will destroy. That's terrifying. Any who would undermine its ministry, any who would seek to Uh, out of selfishness and a lust for power, attempt to ruin 
this church and any local church, God will deal with that person. So, well, that doesn't really happen, does it? All the time. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Take five minutes to read it. That's all it will take. First, did I say 1 John chapter 3? First, I'm sorry, 3 John. Take that off the tape, whatever, scratch that. Read 3 John. 3 John, which speaks of a man called Diotrephes. And Diotrephes loved himself, and he ran the ministry there and sought to destroy it. My wife, Victoria, her, her home church was destroyed by a diatrophies. The guy came in, knew, knew the Bible like the back of his hand. The pastor thought, great, this is a small church. The pastor thought, great, I got a mature guy here. Before too long, he was teaching Sunday school. Before too long, he was a deacon. And before too long, at a business meeting, he brought in a sumo, well, what amounted to a sumo wrestler, a big football linebacker kind of a guy to exert pressure. And before that meeting was over, the pastor was no longer the pastor. He was a good pastor. But this guy had, and the pastor called previous churches where this guy had attended and found out, oh, there's a pattern here. This guy goes from church to church and ruins them. That church no longer exists today. This is in Kalamazoo. This church doesn't exist anymore. I know of two churches right now where that's occurred, and two good, godly pastors have been run off. So this happens. And what's God's verdict? What's God's verdict on men, women who do that? Who's seeking power and, and who gossip and slander and sometimes just plain bully? What's God's verdict? I'm going to destroy you. This is how precious churches are to God. This is how precious we are to God. Peter's picture of believers being part of God's temple implies a couple things for us. So we're God's temple, right? It implies a couple things for us. First, it implies that believers are not to be living lives apart from a local church family. Alone, a believer does not form a spiritual house or a holy priesthood. You, you can't do that as an individual Christian. You do that as part of a church family. Alone, a believer cannot offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord in the same way that that believer can offer spiritual sacrifices as part of a priesthood of believers. One writer says, The scriptures know nothing of an individual piety that is out of touch with the living body of God's people. That's very true. Another author says, In the New Testament, there's no such thing as a Christian who is not a church member. Just read the New Testament. It's really clear. Christians are always connected, involved in, participating in a local church. He goes on to say, Conversion was described in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, with the words, The Lord added to the church. So the Lord added to the church. What does that mean? People came to Christ, and they became members of, became involved in, participated in a local assembly. The two are connected. The New Testament knows nothing of a believer who is disconnected from a local church body. As far as the Bible is concerned, there's no such thing as individual Christianity. The, the, uh, the books of the New Testament were written to local churches, note this, to local churches or individuals in local churches. Folks, the terminology here implies this. Let me encourage you, if, if you 
are here and you want to serve the Lord? It's always in the context, as far as the Bible is concerned, of the local church. If you're not a member, I'm not going to arm wrestle, but I'm going to encourage you. Seek to join. Seek to become part. Secondly, Peter's words here imply that believers never have to face life alone. We never, we don't go through life on our own. We go through life and all that's in front of us with the help of the priesthood around us. By the way, this word stone, there's a Greek word that speaks of a loose stone. A stone you might find on on the ground, on a gravel road, in a field, a loose stone. That's not the term Peter uses here. He uses a term that speaks of a stone that's been prepared. It's been hewn and, and carved. It's been shaped to fit into the wall, as it were. In our case, to fit into the, 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 the structure of the local church. And the idea is simply this. We're not scattered stones. You're a Christian. If you trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, you are a Christian. You're not a scattered stone all by yourself on some gravel road. You are to be part of the structure of a local church family where you don't serve God alone. You serve God as part of the priesthood. As living stones, folks, in Jesus Christ... We've been brought together into a close, permanent relationship. We are a spiritual house, basically cemented together to serve the Lord. Third thing I want to note here, in this image of a spiritual house, it suggests that there's an order to the church. Again, this word stone speaks of a stone that's been prepared to fit in the wall. So the, the, the men constructing the building look at the walls and they put this, they, they, they carve and they hewn and they prepare this stone for this spot. And then they look for, the, okay, the next spot is kind of like this. Let's find a stone that fits that. Let's maybe uh, hewn it a little further and shape it a little further and put it right in there. And there's another one that fits here. And they build the structure that way with stones that have been prepared to fit into that spot. We are not loose stones, folks. We are shaped, have been shaped by God in such a way as to fit together. If you're here, who controlled that fact? If you're part of this church family, why aren't you part of that church family? Why don't you live in Kalamazoo? Why don't you live in, uh, in Lansing? Why are you here? Who put you in your house? Who put you in your job? Who put you in this church? God did. And he shaped you in such a way to fit in to this spiritual house. He arranged arranged each one of us to fill specific tasks. God has given each one of us different abilities, different spiritual gifts to be part of this church family. There are spaces that need filling. And God, oh, I want him to fill that spot. And each one of us fills a different spot. He has shaped each one to fill a specific spot. Pastor fills a specific spot. Matt Domsic fills a specific spot. Nate fits a specific spot. And I can go on and on. You fit a specific spot. Now, what if you're not involved? 
What if you're not serving? And that spot's not filled well. How strong will this church be? You've got to make that decision to obey the Lord and fit into the spot he has for you. A third point I want to see here is that we together form God's priesthood. We are this temple, this building. We as a church family also form God's priesthood. The word priesthood here, of course, refers not to believers as individual priests, but to the company of priests. Now, just to remember this, each one of us is an individual priest because each one of us has direct access to God through Jesus Christ. We, we speak of this as the priesthood of the believers. Really, you are an individual priest. In the Old Testament, there was a go-between, between the Israelite and God. Who was that go-between? The priest. And some churches today, they've stuck in a priest, a go-between. You are not, in their thinking, you are not capable of coming to God the Father on your own. You need an intermediary, you need someone in the middle, you need a priest. So you go to the priest and he goes to God on your behalf. That's not what the New Testament teaches, folks. It teaches that everyone here is a priest. There's no barrier between you and God. Christ has cleared away all those barriers. You go to him daily, as we've just seen, studying the word, hearing him speak, and you speaking to him. You don't don't speak to someone else who speaks then to him on your behalf. You are a priest. Now Peter here, of course, is talking about us as a priesthood. Because God intends that we do priestly work together, not on our own. He intends that we priests are part of a priesthood and serve God together. As priests, we are to be set apart to God. Notice, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We could spend the whole time just looking at the word holy. We're not just a priesthood, folks. We are a holy priesthood. The word holy, as you know, means to be set apart from the things of the world and set apart from common things and set apart for God and for his use and for his service and for his ministry and for his glory. You are not your own to do with as you please if you are a Christian. We're to be holy priests. People who are striving to be holy... They compare everything in their lives with Scripture. And we are to do that. Compare our thoughts, our value system, our actions, our vocabulary, our relationships. Everything in our lives we compare with Scripture. And we ask the question, how does this measure up? How does my vocabulary, how does my lifestyle, how does what I read, how does what I watch on TV, all these things, how does that compare to Scripture? Does it pass muster? Does it go through the filter of scripture? Is this something I should be doing? As priests, this is what we should be doing every day. You know, the Christian life is a constant process of considering what we're doing and throwing out the stuff from the old life that does not pass the muster of scripture. Also, we as priests offer spiritual sacrifices. He goes on to say that. We are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? We're not offering physical sacrifices, right? 
We don't sacrifice animals. By the way, if you're doing that in your backyard, stop. <laughs> the neighbors are going to kind of notice eventually when you're buying lambs and there's blood in your backyard and you have lamb stew. That's just, don't do that. We don't do that. Why? Because Christ is the final lamb. He's come. But we do offer sacrifices. What kind? Spiritual sacrifices. Now, what is he talking about here? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't define it. Now, we do get some inkling as to what that involves by looking at other texts. Let me, let me read a few to you. Romans 12.1, a text you probably know well. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your lives, as living sacrifices. Not dead. You're alive. Your whole life must be a sacrificial life given to God, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So, so part of our spiritual sacrifice is simply the, the, the general, God, my life is yours to do with as you please. Paul speaks in Philippians chapter 4 of believers who are supporting his ministry, and he says this, I've received full payment and even more. In other words, money has been sent to me from you. I receive full payment and even more than I need to serve the Lord. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are the gifts of money and provisions that you've sent. They are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. They benefit me, but they're actually a sacrifice to God. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Through Jesus Christ, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Just verbal praise. Talking to others about God and his grace and kindness and mercy. Describing his attributes. Talking about who God is. He goes on, And do not forget to do good and to share with others For with such sacrifices, with doing good and sharing with others, with those sacrifices, God is pleased. So what are spiritual sacrifices? Well, first of all, it involves offering ourselves. God, I know I'm not my own to live as I please. My life is yours. It involves financially supporting God's work here and around the world. Every time you sacrificially, and you know the word sacrifice, Just define it as, this hurts. That's what sacrificial giving is. It hurts. I could really use that money some other way. It hurts. Every time, as as we give sacrificially to the Lord's work, to ministry here in Marshall, to support this ministry here, to support the work of God around the world, that's a sweet sacrifice to God. And then we continually offer sacrifices of praise and godly lives. Folks, imagine what our church would be like. And imagine how our community would be impacted if each one of us continually offered sacrifices like that. Not just as individuals, but as part of a group effort, as part of a priesthood. So here's the encouragement from Peter to us. You're not alone. You don't serve God as a lone wolf. If you're a Christian, you should be part of what's happening here or some church. Find the place that's preaching the word faithfully and join there. Be a a part there. 
just a plug, this is a good place to do that. We, as individuals, draw near to God consistently. And then as a family, as a church, we form a spiritual house and we are God's priesthood, serving together. Here's Peter's encouragement. You're not doing it alone. You don't serve God alone. You don't face life's trials alone. You're part of a a structure, a spiritual structure. Now, how do you fit in? Are you fitting in? If you don't fit in where God designs you to be, then we're going to be a weak structure. And we serve God and we live in this life as part of a priesthood. Not individuals running to and fro by ourselves, but part of a family. Don't try to go through life and its struggles on your own. Remember, you're part of a priesthood. Share your burdens with one another. Let's grow together as priests and serve together as priests. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text. These two verses say so much. And we ask that you'd help us to reflect upon this, these two verses. I pray that we would spend time today meditating upon this text and extracting from it all that's there. We've barely touched the surface today. Cause us to extract from it all that's here, all the flavor, all the wonder, all the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment that's here. And then cause us, Father, to apply this text to our lives in whatever way is appropriate. We love you. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.